0: What was the cause of the United States Civil
2: War? I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run. The freedoms and what people could and couldn't do.
1: What is it with these Republican candidates in the Civil War?
2: I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. Yeah, the Civil War has now become an emerging topic out here on the campaign trail. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do all things so that individuals have the liberties so that they can have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way.
0: Nikki Haley was asked by a voter what was the cause
2: of the Civil War. She failed to mention the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery?
3: So they say they embraced what's known as the lost cause. A self-serving lie that the civil war is not about slavery, but about states' rights.
1: But I think it's, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln. Of course, if he negotiated it, you probably wouldn't even know who Abraham Lincoln was. Uh, he would have been president, but he would have been president. He would have been he wouldn't have been the Abraham Lincoln would have been different. but. That would have been okay.
0: He is facing some backlash this
3: morning for those words.
1: They just couldn't get along, and that would have been something that could have been negotiated, and they wouldn't have had that problem. But it was a tell- it was a hell of a time.
0: She is asking how Republican leaders from the party of Lincoln could possibly defend those comments, George.
3: So let me be clear for those who don't seem to know, slavery was the
2: cause of the civil. There's
3: no negotiation about
2: that. I mean, of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's that's the easy part of it. Our goal is to make sure, no, we never go back to the stain of slavery. But what's the lesson in all of that? What I was saying was, what does it mean to us today?
3: Welcome. Oh, I, I love montages. We've got to do more montages. we got to get back to those. Yeah, we're going to talk today about uh, the Civil War and why it is surfacing so much in political debate right now. Uh, You just heard Nikki Haley argue essentially all sides of the question at various times (laughs) over the space of a few days. But yes, also, uh, former President Trump is being um, prosecuted uh, under um, a statute that was drafted in 1870 in response to kind of post-Civil War Confederate violence uh, against people seeking the right to vote. Um, He's also being uh, possibly obstructed in terms of ballot access um, by an amendment, a section of an amendment also. Um, past in order to address possible problems arising from the end of the Civil War. So it's just kind of all over the place these days. we got a great show ahead of us with terrific guests. Let me get right to them. Carolyn Gen- Janey uh, is a professor of history at uh, American uh, excuse me, let me begin again, a professor of history of the American Civil War and the director uh, of the now Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. In a couple of minutes, too, you'll be hearing from Gerard uh, Malioka, Mallyo- M- uh, the Samuel R. Rosen professor at the Indiana University, Robert H. McKinney School of Law. He'll be telling us a lot more about the 14th Amendment, Section 3. But uh, but Caroline uh, Janey, get us started here. As, as you listen to that montage, as you've watched these debates unfold in recent weeks— I'm wondering in general about what you're thinking about the way this is kind of churning up again. Arguably, and I think you would probably argue that it actually started churning up quite a while ago, but just give us an overall sense of what you see here.
2: Yeah, and in some ways, thank you for having me. In some ways, I'm surprised that this is part of the conversation. And yet, if I pause just for a moment, I shouldn't be and we shouldn't be surprised Whatsoever. I mean, the issues surrounding the Civil War and debates over causation and legacy have been roiling since the war itself, and it's always been partisan in nature. It's it's always been political. But I suppose what shocks me is, you know, I, I teach courses on the Civil War, on Civil War memory, and. We know from recent polls, a poll as recent as 2023, that most Americans now acknowledge that slavery was the central cause of the war, was the cause of the war. And so the fact that these lost cause messages, and that's precisely what Nikki Haley's message was, the fact that these are bubbling up in 2023 and 2024, I I suppose is rather shocking. I, I thought we were dismantling the lost cause in the past couple of years.
3: Um, since we're using that phrase and we heard Biden use it also uh, in the montage, let's give it a little bit, uh, put a little bit of meat on its bones. What exactly does this term lost cause mean?
2: Sure. Lost cause is the best case scenario. What white Southerners, former Confederates told themselves the war had been about and why the war had played out as it had. Um, It included things like the deification of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, it had the myth of the, the so-called faithful slave, and central to it, especially as as time went on, was the notion that slavery was not the cause of the Civil War, that the war was somehow caused by other questions, specifically, well, vaguely construed as so-called state's rights. Uh, sometimes people would throw in the tariff. But again, central to that was an avoidance of, of acknowledging that slavery was at the heart and center of the war's causation.
3: Um, It could be argued that, I mean, Wolf, I think what you're suggesting also, that this has been kind of a slow burn pretty much since about 1870. Um, And um, my sense of it in 2008 was that you were seeing maybe a slightly faster burn on that fuse, that the election of Barack Obama kicked certain tripwires that was followed uh, two cycles Uh, Out from there uh, in in 2016 by the election of Donald Trump, who very much uses some of those that same language. Um, But I'd like to know how you as a historian trying to interpret the president in terms of what we know about the past saw that last period of time.
2: So you're speaking specifically from 2016 well i mean
3: you can start at 08 if you want to i i personally thought i saw that i saw thought i saw in the rhetoric particularly around you know display of confederate flags and all this kind of stuff that there were people who still weren't ready for a black president
2: oh absolutely that is certainly the case and then we started seeing more of the debates surrounding the the confederate battle flag and of course haley is central to that debate following the the massacre of of nine parishioners at AME church at the AME church in Charleston where Biden was speaking on Monday that that is that is when she decided that in fact the the Confederate flag should come down from the South Carolina state house uh, lawn before that she she had actually defended the flag as Part of heritage and she had been giving these vague notions but along with the flag coming down in 2015 that's when we started seeing the first debates about confederate monuments coming down so we we saw them coming down in new orleans four came down um in 2015 and then the debates spread to other places such as richmond and in here where where i live in, in charlottesville virginia in 2017 of course um, much on our minds here and i'm sure in the rest of the country were the, the horrific unite the right rallies of a log- august 11th and 12th of 2017 in in which people were ostensibly protecting confederate statues but really it it was about um, this right wing ideology and and connecting that message, those symbols of the Confederate flag, and again we we see that as a through line all the way to January sixth, and so yes, 2008 I think is is a point we could look at, but I I really think the tipping point started in in 2015 and it's been escalating ever since.
3: So we'll circle back to that, but um, Jared uh, Malioka, uh, tell us a little bit more about the 14th Amendment. Section three, obviously, people follow the news enough probably to know that in Colorado and Maine and perhaps some other states as well, this uh, section of the 14th Amendment is is being invoked as a reason why Donald Trump should not even be on the ballot. Because, in fact, the terms of the amendment seem to describe the circumstances under which a person like him should not be allowed to hold federal office. But once again, flesh that out for us a little bit. Help us understand what the amendment is and, and where it comes from. Right. Well, thanks for having me, Colin.
1: So basically after the civil war, the question was what should you do with officials who had left to join the Confederacy and now wanted to come back into the same positions that they had before the war had started. And the Northern Republicans in Congress decided that they could not just let these people come back in with no consequences whatsoever for what they had done. So they drafted section three of the 14th amendment to say that those people that is people who had sworn an oath to support the constitution and then broken that oath by joining the Confederacy would not be allowed to come back into office unless they got the equivalent of a pardon from a supermajority of Congress. So the initial idea was we're going to keep these people out partly because they don't deserve to have a second chance unless they show us something that gives us an idea that they should get one. And also that it would be very hard to implement the policies Coming out of the Civil War, if the same people who had rebelled against the government were in charge in the states that had seceded,
3: so for a a layman like me, reading the text of that uh, section of that amendment, which I've now read many times, um, I, I have almost a problem similar to some of Trump's defenders, which is. There isn't really a lot of language in the amendment that explains how you establish that somebody was involved in an insurrection. How is a person to be categorized uh, in a way that would then make that section applicable to them? And it's not even really, it doesn't say in a court of law or by action of Congress. or So how are we to understand how you get from that amendment to saying maybe somebody like Donald Trump is in fact what is being described in that amendment?
1: Right. So first, this is a common problem for interpreting the Constitution. It has broad phrases. It's pretty brief. It doesn't explain a lot of the specifics of how you understand it or implement it. So what does equal protection of the law mean? What does due process of law mean? Now, the difference is that for many things in the Constitution, we have a lot of cases that have been decided that have filled in those gaps. And for Section 3, we don't because it was enforced for basically about four or five years after the war ended. And then that was about it. So there's just a lot less to go on. So we have to do the best that we can. Now, the basic idea that people have been going on is that states can enforce Section 3 if they have state laws that say you can challenge the qualifications of a candidate for office. And in the states that do, then they've got some process for evaluating the qualifications. In Colorado, it was a week-long trial before a judge. In Maine, it was a day-long hearing before the Secretary of State of Maine. Other states would have other procedures. The question really is, are those procedures fair? And I think it's going to be very hard for anyone to say, because you can just watch the whole Colorado trial on C-SPAN if you want, to watch that whole thing over five days and say that was not a fair trial. Uh, I mean, Trump was represented by lawyers. He got to bring witnesses and everything was done in a perfectly transparent and above board manner. And so I think having had a fair trial, then we have to go on to evaluate the legal issues, right? That section three raises and only the Supreme Court can resolve those in the end.
3: Um, you know there is uh, a little bit of irony here in the sense that one of the uh, one of the causes of the Civil War sometimes bodied forth by people who don't want to talk about slavery they'll talk about states rights um, this is an interesting kind of states rights question here as the Supreme Court readies to consider it at some point um, do the states have the right to decide who appears on ballots uh, do the states have the rights to interpret this amendment and it's section three uh, to to shape and these aren't even you know, general election ballots. These are primary ballots, which I I think probably have a slightly different status. I don't know. Maybe you could apply some of your legal wisdom to, to that whole question, too.
1: Well, one way to understand it is that states run presidential elections. That's why we have the primary system that we have. That's why we have the Electoral College. Sometimes when people talk about the Electoral College, they say, well, it's really 50 state elections for president, not one national election. And that's why it's okay. as occurred in 2016, where someone can lose the national popular vote and still be president. Well, because Trump won most of the electoral votes or more of them in the state elections. So, okay, if that's true, then it makes perfect sense to say that states ought to be taking the lead in determining who can appear on the ballot in those presidential elections. And that's been the tradition uh, that we've had really for our entire history and there's nothing special about this the only thing is that it's never been applied to a presidential candidate before because the circumstances have never arisen where a presidential candidate engaged in insurrection against the constitution so this is a but this is a first time for everything and <laughs> and here we are
3: I like that. That's a good philosophy. Um, Caroline and Janie, let me just turn back to you. You know, I'm woefully ignorant about the Civil War um, and and about the aftermath of the Civil War. But looking at this as it unfolds, it does seem to me from my ignorant curbside perspective that what happened after the Civil War was – you could go one of several ways, but one of them is you could essentially, the North could effectively have to be an occupying power in the South to make sure all kinds of laws are enforced, so to make sure that things are not repeated, that were theoretically abolished, that emancipation really meant something. It, there didn't seem to be an awful lot of appetite for that. So I assume that's why we do see things like the 14th Amendment, Section 3, um, the the law that Jack Smith is using about deprivation of voting rights, that they at least tried to <laughs> pass some laws saying you can't go back to the way things were or you can't deal with the aftermath of the Civil War by trying trying to kind of create a state of crypto slavery or, or servitude for the people who were emancipated. But maybe you can say a little bit about more about that, what the thinking was, what was the context in the North as they began to figure out how to enforce the consequences uh, of, the, of the end of the Civil War.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, many scholars have talked about the fact that you needed to have emancipation at bayonet, that that white Southerners absolutely refused to to let go of the, the the grasp that they had on slavery and so we see the fact that it takes the union army marching into places and the will of enslaved people to make their way to those union armies and when the the armies are demobilized if we think about numbers the united states army goes from a, about one million men in april of 1865 down to twenty thousand men I'm, I didn't say that correctly. Um, it, it's reduced by eighty percent, um, but we're down to to we are down to about twenty thousand men by the fall of of eighteen sixty five, which simply is not an occupying force. Moreover, most white soldiers have no interest in being an occupying force. They think that what they were there to do first and foremost was to preserve the union, and they feel like that is done. And so overwhelmingly they want to go home. And so without that occupying force in the South, it is absolutely difficult. The the Freedmen's Bureau offices and the the posts that are there in places like Louisiana, you might have a post of a hundred men in Shreveport and then 60 men that are are 80 miles away. It it simply wasn't um, enough manpower to ensure that not only emancipation, but that black voting rights went into to place and and that that those rights once they were there were protected but but even more than that it's it's what white southerners do in the summer and fall of 1865 that i believe leads to the 14th amendment in the first place and that is white southerners enact black codes to create a system that is is, is very much like slavery by another name with apprenticeships for for, for African-American children, or even for, for some 18 year olds where they are apprenticed to their, their former enslavers. Um, it it pre- pre- prevents um, black men from carrying guns in some places, prevents them from moving out um, of of certain places, such as into urban centers. That on top of the fact that white Southerners begin immediately re-electing many of those former Confederate office holders and soldiers, people like Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy is reelected to Congress. And, and this is a line much too far for even white Northern Democrats who, who were willing to you know, go pretty far in their magnanimous gestures in order to welcome people back into the fold, in order to, to make this union work again. But those two decisions, the Black Codes and re-electing Confederate office holders and and generals, there are five Confederate generals that are re-elected by their states in the fall of 1865. That's why we end up with the, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And because Johnson, Andrew Johnson, isn't willing to enforce it, that's why we end up with the 14th Amendment. So, you know, for all of these images of Appomattox of being this Magnanimous, easy peace. The, the the fight very much still continues, albeit in different ways.
3: Thanks to these two wonderful guests uh, in this segment, Uh, Caroline Janey, professor of history uh, of the American Civil War and director of the now Center for Civil War War History at University of Virginia. Uh, Jared Malioka uh, is the Samuel R. Rosen professor at the Indiana University. Robert H. McKinney, School of Law. We'll take a break. We're going to kind of run our thumb down the blade of this lost cause idea a little bit more in the next segment. All right. As we continue this conversation, joining us now is Clint Smith, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Clint Smith, welcome to our conversation.
4: Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here.
3: So in your work, there's a moment that actually feels almost like a little bit of a repeat of what happened with Nikki Haley when she kind of choked. Um, and uh, you're at one of the many Civil War uh, uh, monuments or places of remembrance uh, or cemeteries that you've visited over the course of doing research. And, and there's, a, I think a woman, I think I mean, her name might be Margaret, I'm just doing this from memory, but who's kind of runs the place. And somebody asks her pretty much the same question. I think she says something like, well, if you ask five different historians, you get five different answers. But a little bit later in your encounter with her, she has maybe a little bit more, slightly more real moment where she expresses a kind of exasperation with people kind of just going, showing up there and just going Confederate crazy uh, with their celebration of the lost cause or whatever else we might want to call it. Could you maybe talk about that and, and how, whether or not you see that as kind of emblematic of the kinds of conversations we're talking about?
4: Absolutely. you know. One of the place that I went that you're referring to is a place called Blandford Cemetery. It's in Petersburg, Virginia, and it's one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country, where the remainder of 30,000 Confederate soldiers are buried. And in addition to that conversation, I remember having a conversation with a guy named Jeff, mm-hmm. and Jeff was uh, a Sons a member of the Sons of Confederate Veteran. He was a Confederate reenactor, and I was there on the uh, Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. And I was talking to Jeff and Jeff talked about how he used to bring his uh, how his grandfather used to bring him to the cemetery when he was a boy and how they used to sit in this beautiful white gazebo that sits in the center of the cemetery. And his grandfather would play on his banjo and he'd play the old Dixie anthem. And he'd tell stories about the men who were buried in the fields and said they didn't fight a war over slavery. Secession had nothing to do with slavery. It had to do with states' rights. It had to do with uh, tariffs. It had to do with state sovereignty, as your guest talked about previously. And as he was telling these stories and singing these songs and lifting up the stories of these men, they would watch the sun set behind the trees and watch the sky turn from Blue to orange to purple to black. They'd watch fireflies come out of the forest and hop from one tombstone to the next. These very sentimental, um, deeply emotional memories. And Jeff told me that now he brings his own grandchildren, uh, specifically his granddaughters, to the same cemetery and sits in the same gazebo with his granddaughters that his grandfather sat in with him and sings the same songs on the same banjo that his grandfather sang with him, Uh, watches the same sun set behind the same trees Uh, tells the same stories about the men who were buried in those fields. And so the thing is, I could go to Jeff and be like, Jeff, man, look, I know that uh, your grandfather told you secession had nothing to do with the Civil War, uh, or secession had nothing to do with slavery, but all you have to do is look at the Declaration of the Confederate Secession in 1861, where a state like Mississippi says, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. But if Jeff is to accept that information, he would have to accept that his grandfather was lying to him. And if he, if he has to accept that his grandfather was lying to him, if that threatens to disintegrate the foundation of a, of a relationship with a man who he loves deeply, a man who represents an entire family, an entire community. And so suddenly, when I'm asking Jeff to accept this new information that runs counter to all the information that he's been presented by people he's loved his entire life, I'm, su- I'm not just asking him to recalibrate his understanding of American history, I'm serving as a catalyst for an existential crisis. And that's not to excuse the lack of willingness to accept empirical reality. But I think it that was an important moment for me because it taught me that for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence. It's a story that they're told. And it's a story that they tell. It's an heirloom that's passed down across generations. It's something where loyalty takes precedence over truth. And so I think when we think about the lost cause, when we think about why these ideas continue to persist, um, in a moment where the answers to these questions are just one Google search away, we have to take seriously the sort of emotional and familial underbelly that sort of undergirds a lot of these beliefs and animates beliefs that can often be violent, bigoted, uh, and distorted and ahistorical, but are held on to because people are trying to hold on to a sense of themselves.
3: You no, know, it's a great point. It's granular. It's this is not like telling somebody that dinosaurs actually had feathers. Uh, this is uh, you, you're you're trying to go against um, very very sort of finely grained uh, indoctrination to a, a certain version of the truth uh, and the facts. And I mean, there's another moment in, in this whole exploration, the exploration that you did there, uh, and, and that is when you actually do attend this Memorial Day, Confederate Memorial Day uh, ceremony with a, a speaker, and, and you realize that as a black man, maybe this you know is not the safest place in the world for you to be. You actually bring a white friend with you, uh, I believe, and, and you do get the stink eye. I mean, if anybody who doesn't think there's a racial component to this, people are looking at you, well, you should, you tell the story.
4: Yeah. I mean, I don't have to tell you that at a Sons Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration, um, I, as a black man, was a a, a conspicuous presence at, at that event. And, and I felt that profoundly. You know, I mean, people I was I was both a black man and a journalist. And so I was standing behind the crowd as these speeches were being given, as these presentations were being made. And I was standing there, you know, with my notebook, Um, taking notes and and i think that all of that together especially in a moment um when i visited this is in 2019 um when there was a, a very intentional war being um uh or there was a lot of uh of misrepresentation of what the media was um uh, led by President Trump primarily, um, and a lot of distrust in the media. And so I think the combination of this black man being present at a Sons of Confederate Veterans event, uh, and the fact that I was taking notes, was suggested that I was a member of a media, which sort of uh, is tied to all sorts of conspiracy theories and ideas, and um, and sort of reifies a sense of distrust. Uh, people turned, you know, took out their phones and started recording me, um, and and it was a fascinating moment to be um so clearly under that gaze i mean my Mm -hmm. face is probably on some neo-confederate message boards uh somewhere but but it felt important for me to be there and and i wanted to go even though it was unsettling it was also just incredibly clarifying. And I didn't want to go in an, an, with an antagonistic disposition. I didn't want to go and do this sort of like daily show. Like I'm going to talk to these people and show how ridiculous they are trying to make them look dumb. What What I wanted to do was genuinely understand how people continue to believe in something that is so clearly false, that is so demonstrably untrue, and yet believe in it so deeply across generations. And I think I got insight to that by just asking, just genuinely going up to people and asking them what this land meant to them, what these people meant to them. And I think it was an interesting moment for them also, because I imagine that it is not often the case that uh, people like me attend those events. And so while I wouldn't challenge people necessarily, simply because I wanted them to tell me their truth, I would share, you know, after somebody shared what this land meant to them, what it meant for them to stand on this Confederate um, grounds, uh, I shared what it meant for me. You know, I would say, you know, it's really thanks so much for sharing. That's really interesting., uh, it seems like we have really different relationships to this ground and to this cemetery because when I stand here, all I feel is the ghost of thousands of people who fought a war singularly predicated on maintaining and expanding slavery over my ancestors. and And so isn't it fascinating how we can have this completely different relationship to this land and to this history? Um and that, you know, I think, took a lot of people um, off guard because I don't know that they have considered that perspective in that way.
3: You know, there's a line somewhere in 1984, it's one of their our slogans, he who controls the past controls the present. I think that after that they say, he who controls the present controls the future, but that whole idea, if you can control the the narrative of the past, you can have a big impact on the present, is, I think, very um, tied to the conversation we're having right now. And it shows up too. I think, kind of famously for years, there have been uh, plantations uh, in the South that are treated as kind of tourist attractions and historic sites. And people show up there and for many years, you know, they would just see the oh, look at the Spanish moss! It's so pretty. I bet this house really looked great in its heyday. Uh, This kind of stuff. And there was quite a bit of pressure, I think, over the maybe the last 20 years or so, uh, to make sure that docents, at least in some of these places, told the story of the slaves there, and that it wasn't, like, gone with the wind. It was really horrible. Um, Interestingly, there's a lot of pushback when docents do that, right? Particularly when black docents do that. uh, Mm -hmm. And then there'll be, like, these online online reviews saying, well, I didn't like Olivia, and she was, like, hitting us with all this stuff, and she's dragging down the country. Um, So this... I don't think that this is necessarily fought just to determine what, you know, what the Antebellum South was like. I think it's also an argument we're having uh, about what the present is going to be like. But tell me how you see that.
4: I think that's absolutely right. And I think that a lot of these historical sites, museums, monuments, memorials, uh, which is what how the word is passed focuses on, uh, are very much at the center of this, this sort of culture and historical debates and, and uh, battles that we're having as a country. I mean, and I I think they're very much on the front lines. If you would take, for example, Monticello, which is the center of um, uh, the portrait of which I paint in the first chapter of my book. Uh, Monticello, for those who might not be familiar, is the home of Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, one of our founding fathers. And at least before the pandemic, and I think it's getting back to this now, a million people a year visited Monticello. A million people don't pick up any book about slavery in a given year at any at any point, right? And so there are people who go to Monticello who don't even necessarily know that they're about to encounter stories and narratives about Jefferson's relationship to slavery, um, who might be introduced to some ideas that they hadn't previously been introduced to um, in ways that they and, – and been exposed to a set of ideas – Uh, in a manner and in a context in which they otherwise might not have been. And one of the reasons I went to Monticello is because I think it is it sort of embodies the cognitive dissonance of the American project, which is to say America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined. And it has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people, who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there. You get to tell this story and not tell that story. You have to hold both of those truths, both of those realities at the same time. And I think Jefferson sort of personifies that. He is someone who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and is also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He's someone who wrote in the Declaration of Independence that he drafted that all men are created equal, and wrote in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, that he believed that black people were inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, that believed that the slave was incapable of love to the same extent that his white counterparts were, that he was incapable of possessing or sustaining complex emotion. And so the interesting thing about Monticello is that the way that Monticello has told the story of Jefferson has changed over time, right? How Monticello tells the story of Jefferson and his relationship to slavery today, how they talk about Sally Hemings, the woman who uh, Jefferson, who bore Jefferson's um, half-black children, uh how they told tell that story in 2023 is different than how they told that story in 2013 and is different than how they told that story in 1983 and 1973 mm-hmm. and i think one of the things about this is that it it reflects that these historical sites don't have to be static right, right. these docents and these public historians and these sites can reflect and change and reconsider how they tell the story of this place to ensure that they're telling it in a way that includes a myriad of perspectives, a myriad of insights, all and is informed by all of the primary source documents that we have to make sure that when we tell the story of a place like Monticello or Blandford or any anywhere that we're telling the story not only of uh, the people who sort of uh, dominated that space given the laws and statutes of the time, but also the enslaved people whose stories hadn't been told for a long time, but whose presence uh, should be understood there in a similar way,
3: but Clint Smith, I think we also have to acknowledge that when we make these very necessary and very valid adjustments, there's a reaction formation against that. We're seeing it right now, and not just people mm-hmm. complaining about Olivia, the docent of the plantation, but uh, state leadership uh, addressing uh, and, and trying to reject critical race theory, and you know, especially this new curriculum in Florida where they actually talk about slavery like with some kind of job training program. Uh, there's a line in the in the new curriculum that says something like "slaves." required skills that could help them in later life or something like that. Um, I mean, that's, that's the cost, right? You, you fix something uh, and then there's a reaction against the thing that you fixed, uh, a sense that something very important is being lost or sacrificed, a sense of replacement, to use the word that keeps in being used by people like Tucker Carlson. Somehow or other, our old truth is being replaced by a new truth. Say a little bit about how you see that.
4: Yeah, I think that part of it, it touches on part of what I addressed before, right? This idea that for so many people reassessing their relationship to American history is not just um an empirical task, it is not just an intellectual task. It is one that is grounded in their sense of self that 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 has the potential to re uh, force them to recalibrate their sense of self. And I think we're tapping into people's identity right one of the things that one of the docents that monticello would tell me um you know you mentioned the pushback that people would give in reviews and after the fact but a lot of that pushback comes in real time oh yeah they're docents at uh monticello and all of these other places who when they tell the story of you know all the things that jefferson said about slavery and the um notes on the state of virginia and the letters that he wrote to um people talking about you know slavery and all the and in really unsavory ways um there are people who in real time on the tour will say that's not true
3: mm-hmm. that's
4: a lie why are you lying about thomas jefferson that's what don't you know why are you bringing this woke agenda into the founding fathers right and so and and it does it be, pe- one of the things that the docents tell me is that part of the reason push back people push back against this fuller um accounting of Jefferson is because if they have to tell a different story about Jefferson, they have to tell a different story about America. And if they have to tell a different story about America, they have to tell a different story about themselves. Because whether consciously or unconsciously, so many millions of people across this country, so many, their sense of self is deeply entangled in a story of America that they have been told and have told themselves for a long time and i think over the last 10 years or so specifically with the advent of the black lives matter movement and then it became supercharged after um the massacre in south carolina um in the ame church and then even furthermore uh, after the murder of george floyd we are telling a, a more honest more sophisticated um more necessary more necessarily multi-pronged story of America that is including perspectives and including ideas that hadn't been included in the dominant story of this country for so long. And that is really scary for a lot of people, again, because it means that they have to then tell a different story about themselves if they're going to tell a different story about America. And so I think you see pushback um, in all sorts of places. And then that, that fear that existential crisis can can often be, and we see it now, be weaponized by politicians because we, they know that by tapping into people's fear, by tapping into a sense of loss, um, they can utilize the that sort of emotional texture um, and wield it in ways that that we see today that are really dangerous. And now you have state legislatures who are trying to prevent teachers from teaching the very things that explain why our society looks the way that it does today. You have school boards who are trying to prevent students from reading books that provide historical accounts from perspectives that students might not otherwise encounter. And all of this is tied to a fear of a loss of a sense of Mm. self, a fear of a loss of an ability to tell a specific story about yourself. Um, And that is the sort of origin of uh, and, and ties back to the lost cause that you were talking about early in the show.
3: All right. We have to stop there, although there's a lot more I would like to talk to you about. But, Clint Smith, uh, thanks so much for your time. Staff writer at The Atlantic, author of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. We'll take a break. We'll talk about when we come back. Maybe something like that could happen fairly soon. Body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah! Glory, glory, hallelujah! Uh, The technical producer today, as usual, is Cat Pastor. Uh, Unusual effort here, all three of our principal producers, McCusker the Wonder Kid, Lily Tyson, and Jonathan McPants, all worked uh, on this show, uh, and we got to do that more often. It's really fun. All right, so uh, joining us now, he's been with us before for a very different kind of conversation. Uh, Stephen Marsh, uh, a novelist uh, and essayist, his most recent book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, is just out in paperback. Um, Stephen Marsh, I think I can tell you the name of somebody who read your book in hardcover. I think it might be Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, because I noticed that when the I-95 bridge went out in 2023, they, they had traffic in six lanes back up on that, I think in about 12 days. And one of the things that, one of the scenarios you, you lay out in your book is that something as simple as a bridge closure, closure rerouting traffic, something as innocuous and anodyne seeming as that, could be the sort of thing that triggers conflict leading to a civil war. For the benefit of our listeners, make a case like that.
0: Well, I mean, if you want to know what, like, the the book is basically, I take what a textbook case of a country uh, about to have a civil war looks like, which is, you know, there are various models for that, mostly from PRIO, which is the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, and apply them to the United States. And I mean, the simple truth is that the United States is a textbook case of a country headed for civil war. Um, I mean, it already has; uh, it's past the threshold of what they call civil strife, which is fifty combatant deaths a year. Um, And you know, I mean, I think you like you know, Bush. I I mean, uh, Trump just today said that bedlam would happen if you were not allowed, if you were prevented by the courts. Um, from running for office, these are the kind of things that happened in countries leading up to civil war. I mean, I think when I made the argument in the book, which was 2021, it it seemed like a controversial idea. But I I mean, the the direction of this is really going one way.
3: Right. One of the um, points that you've made is that one of the interesting features of the outbreak of civil war is that although it can be seen coming, people don't see it coming. Um, we're sitting yeah. here right now thinking, oh, there's not going to be a civil war because I don't think there's going to be a civil war. But see some more about that. About It's sort we're of like, sort of like pandemics. War. You know a pandemic can come, but we, we rarely act like one is actually coming to us. Well,
0: it's but, unbearable to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it's literally unthinkable. Like, you can't actually accept the fact that you could be in a war-torn country. I mean, it's just how are you supposed to plan your life? How are you supposed to educate your children? Right? I mean, it's 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 not an endurable thought. So people just ignore it. Um, I mean, certainly, with that was true in the first Civil War, right? I mean, like many many people, right at Fort Sumter, people did not really believe that that was going to result in any um, sustained violence, right? And they, and, and certainly, um, no, like the, the, the common opinion of historians is that absolutely no one in Washington expected the first civil war or wanted it to happen. Um, and it, but it just, it took on a momentum of its own from forces that were underlying the structure of the society. And, and we're in a very similar situation right now, where we can all feel, um, those structures falling, but we can't face what they, what that means.
3: Um. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think comes out of this book too is there are lots of different ways something like this might unfold, could unfold, mm-hmm. and there and there are, there are sort of better case scenarios. And and one of them that you talk about, I mean, just sort of disunion or relatively peaceful secession, uh, is one way that this could happen as opposed to yeah. armed conflict. Talk a little bit about I, I don't know how this tilts one way or the other. Well,
0: I mean, you know, I, I think one thing is when you actually have a chance at disunion, it kind of lowers the stakes in an odd kind of way. I mean, I live in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. So I, our country nearly ended twice in my lifetime, <laughs> right? Like once when I was a kid and then once when I was in my 20s, there were referendums that really could have ended Canada. But because we knew that was an option, um, the violence didn't really get out of control. I mean, one of the problems that the United States faces is because of the laws passed, particularly the 14th Amendment after the Civil War. Legal secession in the United States, which is a very difficult thing to achieve, even with good you know goodwill between the parties, is you know borderline impossible in in, in the United States just because of the way the law is structured. Now, political changes do alter legal situations, but I mean, I think it, 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 secession gets talked around, thrown around as this idea, of very you know, by people like. The governors of california and texas as well as like many many um political figures as well as of course lunatics and because it feels so remote they don't actually think about what it would mean it becomes just a rhetorical game and i I think that's actually one of the causes of why this is so dangerous like if disunion were actually possible in the united states as it has been in many countries in the world like they decided they don't want to be together czechoslovakia Uh, Norway and Sweden. And, you know, like Canada may yet separate and it will not, you know, God willing, if it happens, it won't be violent Um, because that because that legal structure has been kind of removed from the United States. It actually it actually raises the stakes quite significantly Mm -hmm. and makes violence more likely.
3: So you said two times in your life. Uh, What did you think when the trucker convoy showed up in Canada? Well, it was
0: very interesting. I mean, it's kind of you know, it's very complicated to explain. I mean, it was our pathology of nonviolence that really um, you know caused the problems. I mean, we it, like it, it was obviously um, a spillover of of the of the movement in the United States, and also, of course, it was uh, COVID. So it was like a reaction to a, you know a very intense form of social control. I mean, Toronto, the city that I li- live in, had a 333-day lockdown. So, you know, everyone was going pretty much insane, Um, wh- you know, one way or the other. Uh, Yeah, I mean, these are, like, I think um, it, it is, living next to America can be a bit dangerous these <laughs> days. Like, it's, it definitely has a feeling of, like, chaos spilling out over the border.
3: It's one of our exports. Um, yeah. So... So,
0: which is amazing. I mean, just like, you know, when I was a kid, the idea that the United States would be the unstable one and Canada would be the stable one when when I was 20 years old, that idea was so laughable. It could, I mean, it just goes to show how unpredictable the world is.
3: You know, uh, we're on public radio. Public radio has a certain reputation. Um, and right. I think, generally speaking, we tend to say, it's them. It's Trump. It's those people. It's them. Mm-hmm. Um, your book suggests that it's probably not 100% one way and 0% the other way. But this might be the last thing we have time to talk about. But I, I'd love for you to flesh that out a little bit.
0: Well, I mean, I like the reason I wrote the book is because I wanted to see in the chaos I was seeing, like, why? Right. And, you know, it's not the people. It's not the people of the United States. It's the structures. Right. It's the it's the structures of government. It's the fact that, the you know, you worship the Constitution. Constitution is 200 and almost 40 years old. And it, um you know, it's an antique document that is really on its last legs and doesn't function. Right. And Um, you know, that's not to take away from it. I mean, it's a work of great genius. It's just a work of genius from a different century. And I think when you when you look at when you study other regions that go through civil wars and other areas that have this, you see that it's not it's not the people. It's not those guys or our guys or whatever. It's it's the legal and political substructures that cause this chaos. And that's why, you know, I, I like the debates that so few politicians are having about reforming the actual electoral system, re, you know, reforming the primary system are just so urgent. But really, they get blinded in the let's get rid of all the Trumpists or, you know, let's get rid of all the liberals or the DEI people. Right. And 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 that's you know, that that means that no one is really looking at the actual problem. They're just distracted by you know, hatred, <laughs> hatred for, for the other side.
3: Right. Uh, We have to stop there. Uh, But uh, yes, uh, we have an antiquated constitution, which we are no longer capable of amending. That's very dangerous all by itself. Stephen Marsh is a novelist and essayist. His most recent book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, is just now out in paperback. We have to go. Thanks to my three wonderful producers. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to you for listening.
0: Down by the riverside Gonna lay down
4: my sword and shield Down by the riverside Gonna study war no more Ain't gonna
0: study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. Gonna put on my one white rope down by the riverside.